Welcome to the Forest Overstory podcast. This podcast explores forest stewardship in the Pacific Northwest, helping landowners and professionals gain new insights and information in the field of forest management. The Forest Overstory is a product of the Washington State University Extension Forestry Program and is supported by the Washington Department of Natural Resources and the Society of American Foresters. All right. Well, welcome back, Forest Overstory listeners. Happy June. We are back for another great episode. Uh, Here with me today is Jenny Glass, a diagnostician and manager of the WSU Puyallup Plant and Insect Diagnostic Lab, also just called Plant Clinic sometimes. Jenny, how are you doing? Doing good. How about yourself? I'm doing great. I am excited to have this conversation today with you because I'm ashamed to admit that even though I am a you know a WSU employee I know so little about the plant clinic and all the services that it provides um and well, so we this are a good kept secret so you know, we try <laughs> not to be so yeah probably because I imagine if you if you get too well known then you're drinking from a fire hose right Right. Yeah. And like anyone at WSU, we all have capacity issues, but you do do so much great work. Um, so, yeah, I'm really excited to to dig into it. And I mean, just to, to give our listeners a, a little bit of background, um, can you just tell us maybe about the, the primary function of the plant clinic? Okay. So the lab that I run, and I've run it for 23 years, is um, designed to help um homeowners, master gardeners, landscape professionals, crop growers, Christmas tree producers, foresters, you know, everybody basically solve um, problems with plant diseases and insect pests as well as stresses. So the lab receives information about a plant problem. And sometimes the first thing we do is say, hey, you've noticed something, but it's not a problem. That's a feature of the plant or the time of year when that plant does things. Um, and then if we don't, if we do think it's a problem, we try to figure out if something is a living cause or a non-living cause, so a stress or a disease right. or a pest, and then we try to figure out which one is that. And then my goal as a diagnostician is to tell you what you could do about it. So many times there is live and let live. I mean, that's a lot of the forest issues out there are things that are normal parts of a forest. And there are maybe some things you could do, like plant a different type of tree, but there might not be anything practical you can do for that particular you know, plant while it's having that problem. Other things, there's lots of stuff you can do. You could prune for good air circulation. You could use a, you know, a pesticide or something like that. Um, you know, you could plant the plant at a different time of year. There's all sorts of things you could do. So it kind of varies. And then, um, you know, my goal, main goal is, can you solve the problem to, so you can sleep at night? So sometimes that means stop, stopping at, you know, maybe it's a pathogen and there's, you know, sit back. It's not going to hurt the plant other than aesthetics. Or maybe it's, no, you got to do something. Um, and then there will be times where, you know, I'll tell you the name of the organism, the family of the pa- the pest or something like that. And then there's lots of times where I'm like, I worked really hard. I don't see this, this or that, but I'm pretty positive it was a stress. Um, and so, you know, at this point, monitor it. And if things change, let's let's rediscuss. So I'd love to say it was a, you know, may, we put a puzzle together every time and you have a beautiful picture of what's going on when you're done. But what we do is we take the puzzle pieces and we work them around and try to figure out what makes the most sense. Um, and so, and then, you know, I've been, I'm from Washington state. I grew up, um, in the Kitsap Peninsula in a wooded area, Mm. 
grew up, you know, hiking the mountains of the Olympics, the beaches of, of the um, Olympic Peninsula when in the summer, I mean, in the, in the winter when the mountains were all covered with snow. Right. So I've seen a lot over, over my years. I've gardened since I was probably 12 years old. Um, so growing a lot of stuff. And then I've had a lot of other, you know, crop research and um, gardening, growing types of experiences. So basically, I always consider myself the jack of all trades, master of not much, but you know, <laughs> a great resource for, for a good place to start. And so I definitely encourage you know the people listening today that if they have some sort of um, problem that they're experiencing in their forest, that they at least start by, you know, maybe emailing me. Um, Jenny Glass at wsu.edu is the best way to get a hold of me. I'm online. You can find that email real easy. Um, and email me a little situation and a picture of what's going on, and we can start seeing if there's something that we could do to help you out. That's great. Yeah, no, I, I, I that's exactly the the overview I was I was hoping for. I think it's funny that you consider yourself a, um, you know, jack of all trades, master of none, because I, I, I feel that way about myself oftentimes, you know, uh, inch deep, a mile wide kind of. Uh, right. But and I I'm... was going to say the opposite of you is you're, you're kind of the nitty gritty, to, in my opinion, because a lot of times in forestry, we're, we're working on best guesses about certain pathogens, insects and diseases. Um, and it sounds like you get to be kind of like the last stop to some degree and say, you know, it is this pathogen for yeah. sure, down and to we, the genus and species. And, and that's yeah. exactly what we need sometimes. Yeah. And, and we do have, you know, tools that allow us to do that kind of stuff. Um, we run a lot of our disease problems onto laboratory auger trying to grow out the fungus or the mm -hmm. bacteria. Um, we look at um, certain types of testing. We can detect phytophthora root rot diseases in roots with a little um, kind of uh, sim similar to your COVID test where, you know, positive, negative is the pathogen there or not. Yeah. Um, and we can do that with a lot of different types of plant tissue. Um, there are you know, all sorts of other analyses. My lab is pretty low, low, low tech though. So like if I need to, you know, if I find a fungus and I don't, can't recognize it based on the, the look of the fungus, um, I may, depending on who you are, say, okay, well, that's enough. We found a fungus. It's most likely a pathogen. We have all the arsenal we can do to, you know, start managing it. Or, you know, if you're the nursery producer that's producing plants for other people, well, it's be really important to know what that actually is. Right. And so I might be able to ask a colleague who's a mycologist or send it down to a lab that does DNA analysis or something. So I often consider myself kind of the middle middleman broker for these kind of things. <laughs> and, you know, with all the skills out there, there really isn't anything that can't be, you know, pinpointed a lot but a lot of times it's quite pra you know the practical is we can stop before we get to that pinpointing part just because it isn't going to make a ton of difference to the forest owner or the you know crop producer or something what exactly it is it's you yeah. know is it a fungus or is it a stress because you know that'll tell us what we're going to do um and then also like every, most of the people listening today i mean we only have a certain budget to uh, <laughs> you know get right. these things done and you know you can buy a lot of trees for 150 dollars, which would be what it would cost to get like some dna an analyzed at another lab so you know there's this i always joke because i feel like over the, the the 20 some years i've been here i have saved a lot of the molecular people a lot of heartache because the you know i'm the i'm the practical person i'm like is the pathogen you're looking for in the database is it important to know this kind of thing um thank you for that piece of genetic information but in fact you're look you know 
whatever the database you're reading it off of is wrong because I gave you a fungus and that's a that's a plant, you know. So it's 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 an interesting time to be in diagnostics because there's so many tools out there. Um, you know, we watch TV and we expect all these high class diagnostics, and yet when the you know end of the day, many times you just need somebody who's been around and looked at things um, to get you in the right direction for the types of solutions. And I, as your listeners will know. Um, you know, I feel like back 20 some years ago, I was a lot worse diagnostician, but it was a lot easier for me because I didn't know all the various things that were out there. Um, and I and almost everybody who comes into my lab and talks about, you know, owning uh, a piece of forest or owning a Christmas tree farm or something like that. I mean, they always talk about how five years ago they wouldn't have even noticed the problem that they're coming in for today because they were just so busy trying to, you know, stay on top of everything else. And then as it gets, those things get easier, then they start to notice the, you know, the, the branches that are wilting or the, you know, leaf spots or something like that. So, you know, I think that, especially for the listeners of this podcast, I mean, there's just so much out there um, that, you know, one of the first things I often tell people is let's figure out if, how, how concerned we need to be because many of the things that we're going to see are just part of the forest, you know? Yeah. I, I love that. That's, that's a really great point. And it's funny because even uh, uh, last week I was teaching a, a forest health class for uh, um, a master gardener training. And I, I always joke because, you know, I, t- that's the, it's a long talk. It ends up being like two to three hours and I cover maybe two percent of the insects and diseases out there that could you know that want to munch on your trees in some way or another uh but it's just because those are the ones that that really only ever require management and most of the other ones you know they're just part of the healthy ecosystem Mm -hmm. um so you mentioned that you know you grew up in kitsap county uh your gardener you know so like many people in extension, uh, this isn't just a job for you. It's also part of your passion, part of your life, I imagine. Um, so, you know, going on that road, I'm kind of curious, you know, what, what brought you to this position where, what were you, what were you doing before this, if anything, or was this your, was this your first gig? You know, let's learn a little more about that. Uh, no. Um, you know, when I was, when I was, I got into gardening because my mother kicked me off the playground saying, you're too big for the swing set. Let's, you know, <laughs> but I still wanted to be out and about in nature and away from my siblings. So gardening was the, you know, the thing of thing that I liked. And then at North Kitsap, we had a wonderful horticulture program. And my mom said, um, all, you know, anybody who loved plants as much as I did was going to take that class. <laughs> and it was a awesome program. The teacher was fantastic. Um, we were on FFA and we did judging and stuff like that. And so my first job was um, on Bainbridge Island on the Bloedel Reserve. I was a high school student that was mowing lawns for Bloedel and things like that. And uh, it was awesome, but I was around a ton of gardeners and I think that were really falling apart, you know, because the work was so hard. <laughs> and I am like, hmm, do I want all these medical problems at age 30? No, not really. So I headed off to Oregon State, um, got a degree in plant pathology research of all crazy things, um, because I went into the horticulture program, but it was kind of slow to get started. Mm-hmm. And my advisor said, oh, well, my, my buddy in a plant pathology lab um, needs a, some help in the lab. And within a week of washing dishes and plating things, I mean, the idea that, that these tiny almost invisible, you know, cells could take out the entire pear orchard of orchards of Oregon just fascinated me. And I, I just never looked back. So, you know, my background is in plant pathology. Um, and I worked on strawberry, uh, what was it? Strawberry botrytis, gray mold of strawberry was my first project that I ever worked on. 
Oh, cool. Um, knew I was heading into the sciences somehow, but wasn't sure what to do. And so I joined the Peace Corps for two years and was in West Africa in the Gambia, um, working with women gardeners, growing plants. Wow. Um, and so the irony is, and we did a lot of diagnosis in that work. I mean, sometimes it was quite obvious. Oh, the forest burned down. Yeah, okay, that was that was a big deal. Or the cows got into the plots and ate up all the trees. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times, like one time, I I bought a bunch of tomato seeds and was selling them to you know the gardeners there, and they all started dying. And then I had to figure out you know what was going on. And unfortunately, the tomatoes that we had bought were highly um, sensitive to nematodes, and there were a lot of these um, pathogenic nematodes in the soil. So it was like, okay, get the word out. Don't buy this type of tomato because it's not going to grow for your farmers kind of thing. Um, And then one day in a really hot telephone booth, I'm trying to figure out what's next in my life. And I called my former boss up and said, okay, I I left you the application for grad school. You know, I'm applying today. (laughs) Um, And so I um, worked on potato late blight, which is that disease that caused the Irish potato famine. And then after three years of that, I wanted to come home to to Washington. I was looking for a job and a colleague knew the diagnostician here at Puyallup. And so I came up and I worked for um, Gary Chastagner. Mr. Christmas tree or Dr. Christmas tree that most of you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, for, for a summer, I worked for the plant clinic and then the diagnostician had to take a new job. And then that I got in the position and just loved it. Um, probably did nine, 90% of my actual, like, what does a powdery mildew look like? How do you culture a bacteria? Um, you know, because I knew two systems really well and I knew only vague amounts of the rest of it. So the first several years, the learning curve was so steep. Um, but I had nothing else to do. So it was pretty fun to, you know, hang out in the lab and learn, 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 learn. Um, and so I learned how to, you know, about the diseases, about the insect. I mean, I had a little tiny in- entomology background, um, mm-hmm. but it wasn't something that I was tuned to looking for. So, you know, I'd always be like working hard and then the entomologist would be like, oh, wait, did you see the aphids on that? Did you see, you know, did you see the, the psyllids or, you know, whatever it was. So I had to learn about looking for, for um, insects. And so now I'm actually, you know, very, very good for a plant pathologist. I mean, I would never call myself an entomologist, but <laughs> I'm certainly a better pl- entomologist than most plant entomologists are plant pathologists. So, um, <laughs> you know, funny. and I think the thing I love about this is that one, it cre- it's a combination of science, but it's also a combination of helping people. So, you know, yeah. You know, working for a university, never having enough funds, never having the staff you want, you know, I'm always frustrated because I, I do my best, but I'm, I never seem to be able to get back as fast as I would like the people and those kind of things. And yet when I do get back to them and I've told them something and they're going to be able to, you know, manage a problem, sleep better at night, you know, maybe recover some costs of something they've been losing. Oh, it is a wonderful feeling. And then the other thing that working for the university allows is a lot of educational opportunities. So I teach um, not as much as I could, because I mean, I could do it every day with, with people who have requests. But I mean, I, I stick to a lot of the, um, you know, really important organizations. And I've worked for like the, I've t- taught for the community forest program and a few other things in the past. So it's just fun to be able to share experiences. And then I also learn when I go see, you know, um, audiences of like your, your listeners here today, because they, they can tell you so much and they can keep you in touch of what's going on and stuff like that, that you just can't find when you're staring at a, you know, in a microscope in the lab. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. I, I, I like your, your journey, uh, to extension. It sounds like you, uh, found that you really belonged in this position and then just kind of shaped it to your liking too. You got it. Great. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, so, I mean, it's really, 
I want, I'm so tempted to, to dig into this, the potato thing, <laughs> but I have to remember this is a forestry podcast. So maybe, maybe another time, because I think that's really fascinating. Um, but I'm just kind of curious, you know, you got into this position, um, you know, what, and not, not really having like the forestry side of things, what was your, uh, you know, process or experience, you know, what was like the first forest health past that you sort of became intimately, uh, aware of, uh, well, I mean, we, in many of my plant pathology classes, we'd have diagnosis classes. And so like, mm-hmm. I mean, I remember the first time I was on a field trip at Oregon state field trip class where we'd go around and see different things. And I mean, first of all, it was cool. Like the day we were in forestry because we were running around the woods with foresters and, sure. you know, they were teaching us a lot of stuff. And like, you know, at one point, um, you know, us grad students were like cutting at the bark of the, of a dead tree. And the forester's like, um, do you see how tall this tree is? And do you see how rotten that bark is? And if it came down on you, you would probably be dead. You know? <laughs> so he, he taught us a lot. And, you know, he taught us to look for widow makers and, you know, you know, just being mm-hmm. smart in the woods. Um, and then at the end of that day, my bo- or the teacher said, okay, your, your, your plant to figure out for the week, the problem for the week is on that tree. And he pointed to a tree and I looked at it and I saw nothing. Hmm. And one of my colleagues fortunately knew what he was pointing at. And she said, those aren't cones on that spruce. So I went up and it was Cooley spruce gallidelgid. You know, I mean, it nice. took me a couple of days to figure it out. But I mean, my first gut was that looks like a perfectly fine spruce tree with a lot of cones on it. And yet what I was calling cones were, you know, growths on the spruce that when you, you cut them in, you could see that, you know, the insects had created them and stuff like that. So that was probably the first one. Um, that you is know, a tricky one. I mean, that's yeah. A, <laughs> yeah. That's but funny. then back when back when I was a kid, my favorite, I had a mate, we had a big maple tree in the yard that was a weeping form, you know, wasn't a forest type, but it was great when you had a lot of siblings, because you could just go under that tree and hide out for a long period of time. And one day the branch, one branch started dying and another branch started dying and I was pretty upset. And so my dad, you know, was always good at helping figure things out. Um, and um, so we went to the books and looked it up and discovered that it was dying of verticillium wilt. And so unfortunately, wow. to this day, there's not much you can do about verticillium wilt. But I mean, just a very early um, interest in plant diseases. Okay. Well, that is the absolute perfect segue, because one of the first things I wanted to talk to you about was uh, city bark disease. Uh, I know that the plant clinic has been involved to some degree in in diagnosing this, and it's a... Uh, you know, I'll, I want to give you a chance to give the background because uh, it's probably better than what I could do. But my understanding is, you know, this is not necessarily a new disease. Uh, it's been around in Washington for a while, but it's starting to become more aggressive. Is that about right? Well, I'll give you my perspective. Sure. It's lucky that I was not in charge of this because I probably <laughs> would have done almost nothing. I mean, when if somebody had sent me the original, you know, disease sample, I would have said, okay, there's a bunch of fungi on this dying tree and it's stressed. And these fungi are, you know, there because it's stressed and we need to work on the stresses that kind of, if, if it went practical, which unfortunately, uh, you know, the park system was the one that, uh, Seattle parks was the one that turned in the first samples that were really, you know, identified. Um, and there's not much they could do about watering the plants where, where they were finding them. Sure. Um, but fortunately, they didn't, you know, 
they didn't ask me, they asked another lab and they have a molecular thing. And so they picked up a pathogen that is known to be, you know, both an epiphyte. So that is something that lives on plant tissue, but is also an opportunistic pathogen. And so that was the city bark bark pathogen, maple sooty bark. Um, So then they started surveying for it and discovering that it was, you know, pretty widespread. It is native to the United States and it unfortunately has spread over to Europe. Um, So what we're, what I'm helping with, and it's, I'm just sort of like the middleman shuffling the samples to the lab, um, is a survey to see, you know, what's out there. Um, Dr. Uh, Joey Holbert had um, got some money, I think it was USDA funding, um, to test for it. And and that, unfortunately, that money is now gone. So we're trying to figure out what we can do next to pay for these kind of work. Because as all of you listeners know, money, you know, there's never enough money to do everything you want to do. But in my my take, you know, this is this is I'm not a forester, right? I'm a generalist, but I see a lot of stuff. My take is that this problem is like as well as maybe the dying maple problem, possibly even associated with some of the dying ferns and dying salal in various parts of you know Western Washington, has a lot to do with climate change. Um, you know, it's been hotter, drier, longer, different times, and I'm not going to argue whether or not you know you know what. The, the, the facts or whatever, but what I'm going to say is that things are definitely different now than they were years ago. And unfortunately, you know, plants can't move. Plants can't, um, you know, get the things they need. Like right now I'm in a, a lab that's not too hot right now. So I've got a sweater on by the end of the afternoon when it's 80 degrees in here, I'm going to have my sweater off. Well, plants just have to kind of deal with what they have. And unfortunately, you know, the reason that what you're going to be seeing is you're going to be seeing a lot of problems as a result. Um, So, so like with the maple sooty bark issue, many of the first indicator trees, the ones that, that the Seattle parks caught their attention of were trees that love, you know, abundant irrigation, especially in the summer, which we don't get even in, even if nothing was changing, we just don't get that very often in in Western Washington. So they were the ones that were stressed the most. And so this organism um, fungus was able to really, you know, attack and and cause a lot of problems. and so, you know, I, I truly believe that we will be seeing a lot of this. Um, I'm also a firm believer, like, you know, people change their impressions of things. So, like, if you had talked to my grandfather, um, you know, another issue that we're having right now is with madrones. They have cankers on the stems, a mm-hmm. really bad number of fungi that are opportunistic leaf spots or even sometimes primary pathogen leaf spots, especially when, um, you know, the weather um, is conducive for the diseases. And that's often cold spells in the winter. And yet, if you talk to my grandfather, I mean, his definition of madrone was awful trash tree that leaves loses leaves year <laughs> round. You know, now we call madrones cherished, you know, native ornamental that we need to do a lot about. But the truth is, I mean, in our you know three four generations from now, if you want to see a madrone, you're probably not going to be looking you know close. You're going to have to be going up further north where where the environment is more will be more conducive for the that particular species. Um, if the tree can, you know, spread itself that fast too. And yeah. yet like today, I mean, I'm, I drove around West or the Southern um, Puget Sound the last two days. And I am amazed at all the beautiful um, native flowering dogwoods that are, you know, having their bracts showing right now. I'm just such a beautiful tree. Mm-hmm. And yet when I was growing up um, in the seventies and eighties, the um, dogwood anthracnose organism was just, you know, killing tons and tons of, of our native 
um, dogwoods. And so what happened was that that pathogen is still around. It's still influencing our forests. However, in a certain population of, of the dogwoods, there's a couple that are resistant or, or less you know, susceptible. And those are the ones you're seeing today. You're, you know, you're not seeing anything that it's not that the pathogen went away. It's that over the course of 40, 50, 60 years or whatever, I guess it's like 50 now, um, the 70s <laughs> to now, um, the, you know, the really, really susceptible trees died. The ones that were, you know, somewhat damaged, you know, somewhat thrive, but the ones that weren't really impacted have started to thrive. And so you're going to be seeing a ton more of the, the more hardy or more resistant types of um, dogwoods. And it's, you know, it's the same dogwood. It's just, just a slight genetic change somehow that allows it not to, not to be killed off by that pathogen. So my guess is that the same, you know, similar things are going to be happening with all these issues that we have in our trees right now. Mm. Um, you know, there will be, you know, some big leaf maples that are just better suited for all the stresses. And they're going to be the ones that are going to start to thrive. They'll reproduce. There will be yeah. some, you know, we're going to, uh, in our urban forest, we're going to be planting more maples that can handle, you know, stressful situations instead of the, like the red maples that really like the moisture and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, it, especially this, you know, the sooty bark, disease where, I mean, it probably is native to parts of the United States. I mean, may even be native here. We don't really know that for sure. Um, but, um, you know, you often think of only invasive problems as, as, as issues. But no, I mean, there's times when things will be the, the one of the things I was talking about with plant disease is, is that you have to have a pat, the plant, the pathogen, and the environment must be conducive for the establishment of the disease. So, you know, at this point, I, I really believe that we um, need to keep an eye on the environment too, because that's influencing a lot of what we're seeing in our um, forests and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, that, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, these diseases are becoming more relevant and problematic around the same time, you know, after 10 years of pretty frequent uh, hot and dry summers, uh, right. you know, extremely dry and expend abnormally hot. I don't think that's a coincidence at right. all. And several years ago, I was in Rocky Mountain National Park, you know, and I was, we were seeing all the prescribed burns and they were having all this gorgeous signage about how it was to kill off the bark beetles. And my, you know, brain is like full. I mean, you could just see hundreds of acres with, you know, away that the bark beetles were attacking. And about six months later, I was like, oh, wait a minute, where were they burning? They were burning around the roads, the campgrounds, the historical mm. structures. They were burning to, to protect people. And then they were giving the, you know, this message that it was for the forest, which, you know, it wouldn't, wasn't going to hurt. But they, the, the people that were making those plants obviously understood that, you know, bark beetles were a cyclic, you know, taking advantage of the situation, but that they needed to make sure that people weren't, you know, in, in danger of forest fires and things like that. So it's kind yeah. of interesting. No, <laughs> it, it is. And I think you're right. I think, um, you know, you mentioned this is a, a process that has happened throughout Earth's history. The difference is that it's happening a lot faster now, and and that is the the, the variable, right? How how quickly can trees adjust? But certainly, some are more genetically um, resilient to right. things like city bark disease. I think sight also plays a really important role. The way I 
explain it to, to folks is, you know, every tree has its ideal conditions and can also live outside of those ideal conditions. Um, but we're seeing that sort of spectrum just tighten up in a lot exactly. of species. Um, big leaf maple is an example, the decline, those areas like forest edges are a big one, urban areas. I also uh, always try to remind people because this conversation can get very doomsday very quickly and it is, it's serious and we need to be taking it seriously. But I also try to remind people that, you know, a lot of the damage we're seeing is in areas that we, you know, we see a lot, you know, mm -hmm. by roads and stuff. So maybe the damage isn't, is just, or, or, or it looks disproportionate, you know, and I, I manage, uh, a property for, for WSU here in Olympia. And I'm seeing big leaf maple decline on the edges in the interior, not so much. Um, so definitely a very serious problem. Uh, but I always like to give people a little ray of hope there when we talk about things that are killing their trees. Exactly. Uh, but uh, yeah, but I think that site function is really important. Like you said, with Madrone, you know, whether it it's through their own migration or by us, you know, assisting in that migration, you know, species are going to have to, we're gonna have to be very much more intimately aware of the sites that these species want. To right. be on. Yeah. And like my colleagues here at WSU Puyallup, I mean, they have a madrone plots where they've gathered seed from the entire West coast and they're looking to see what's, you know, what's really susceptible to the d different diseases and what's not. And, you know, it's amazing. You can see a completely dead plant and then there'll be a plant, you know, right next to it from a different seed yeah. source that's thriving. So yeah. nature is, is very resilient. <laughs> we do have to do our part and we should not, you know, and I guess the other thing I always tell people is just because it seems discouraging doesn't mean we can't do anything. So today right. is a great day to start. <laughs> yes. I like that. That's a good message. I want to, um, you know, maybe this is just for my edification, but hopefully it's valuable to the listeners as well. Because um, I don't know a lot about the madrone diseases, but I know that WSU has some dedicated efforts around that, as you mentioned. Um, from what I've heard about it and the little research I've done, it it seems like there's a, a whole suite of actual, you know, diseases and, and insects potentially that really go after madrone. But is it a, is it a killer of the tree, are there any in particular that are more worrisome and will it actually um, kill the madrone? Because a, a lot of what I've heard is that it tends to knock them back and make them look very bad, but they usually don't kill them. Yeah, and, and my advice for madrone problems is you know, enjoy the new growth as it's coming out in spring when it <laughs> finally blackens up, you know, stare at an or orange colored part of the bark and, you know, rotate through the year. Um, yeah, yeah, unfortunately, there, I mean, there are trees that are dying. There's areas. But again, I think this, yeah. it's more than just the disease. It's the environment and everything. Um, what we first, the we, I'm going to use the Roe, because I really didn't have anything to do with this part. But, you know, the first thing about Madrones was they discovered how how poorly adapted to any changes they are. I mean, they like the situation that they're growing in. <laughs> and so a lot of the initial concerns with the fungal cankers that were killing off branches and things like that was that people would get in there and they would prune and then there would be a sunburn event and then the sunburn event was wounded tissue that a pathogen would get into so a lot of the and if you look at a madrone stem you'll see like there's ridges of callus tissue all around those cankers madrones are really good at walling off the damage and trying to keep going um, so that's why we kind of tell people you know live and let live with a madrone but try to not do much with it just leave it alone well when the the variety of fungal infections, I mean, we've always had leaf spots on, on madrone leaves, but I 
maybe 10, 15 years ago, I can't remember the exact date, we started noticing what we'd call, you know, a madrone blight. The whole, all the leaves were blackening on almost all the trees. And so, and, and um, Dr. Marianne Elliott has looked a lot at various fungi. She's found a couple, you know, major types that are, seem to be doing that. They seem to be tied with cold temperatures. And I am a firm believer that that is not help, help, helpful for the plant, but not necessarily lethal. I mean, it's just, the ones, the trees that die are the ones that aren't in the best site. They're the ones that have, you know, the sure. disease, the canker, and then, yeah, insects. The, there's a lot of different, you know, leaf miners and uh, all sorts of other stuff. And it's just a jungle. So when I'm going to give a hands-on workshop, I mean, I have to say madrones are the first plants I go to look for because there's always something you can find to show somebody. But yeah, <laughs> most of the stuff is going to be aesthetically, you know, un unpleasing to look at. But the madrone has a massive amount of ways that it's managing those problems. That's fine. I have a a spindly little Charlie Brown Christmas tree style uh, madrone in my yard that is every year I think, well, I can't live another year. There's no way. I mean, it just looks so sad. But every year it, it puts out a little new growth. And you're exactly right. It's, yeah. uh, it, it's, it's stubborn. Right. <laughs> in a, maybe then, in a good way right and then one of the things they learned was i mean people would say madrone doesn't transplant well well that's not true madrone mm -hmm. doesn't transplant from the wild well like if you dig up a wild plant it's probably not going to survive sure. but if you plant it from in a pot and transplant that pot it works just great so okay interesting um so i i want to continue this conversation on uh you know insects and diseases and all the things are trying to kill your trees um and one of the ones I wanted to talk about today was uh, emerald ash borer. We, we actually had a really great episode for the listeners that might have missed it. I think uh, two episodes ago. I should really know that better. Uh, we had Karen Ripley on with the forest. Oh, Karen's kind great. Of oh, Karen's amazing. And, and we had a really great conversation about emerald ash borer and its, you know, its history, its origin, and and what the impacts in Washington might be, and you know how the next you know, 10 years might play out now that we uh, are home to this invasive insect. So we don't need to necessarily get into too many of the details on, you know, what kind of devastation it can cause. We know, I mean, up to, you know, often up to 99%, nearly 100% mortality in some cases. Um, what I'm kind of curious about is what do you think the plant clinic's role will be uh, as we start to get you know more and more potential sightings and people it becomes you know more publicly aware that this is an issue right so one of the first things um the, the plant can can help with is we do do a lot of um diagnosis yeah. um and so i just actually attended a um, wood boring beetle workshop led by oregon department of agriculture and um the um EAB is in the Buprested beetle, and I, in a course of a week, I looked at about 90 different types of Buprested beetles that we have around here, and you know, and were was shown, um, you know, identification keys, screening aids, etc. So, if a landowner or listener of this podcast um, has a takes a look at something and notices that you know some sort of green beetle-like organism, and they're not sure, you know get us a sample, even a good picture. And many of our um, cell phones now have a magnifying app. And, you know, you just take that particular thing. And I wouldn't be able to tell you it was EAB exactly from an image, but I could definitely rule out all the other stuff that are green and, you know, sort of the same idea. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so, and then I also work, um, our director here at Puyallup is an entomologist and he's taken the same training and he, you know, his background and love is entomology. So we plan to work as a team and, and, and um, do that. We've written um, with Kevin Zobris help. I'm not we. Kevin Zobris, with a little bit of my help, let's let's be honest about this, <laughs> um, has written a very um, extensive bulletin about you know management and that kind of stuff. But the other thing is, I mean, we're just a great source to send people to. Um, we're educating the master gardeners. We're educating you know the landscape professionals and and stuff. So I think we'll be doing a lot of clearinghouse of information. And you know, someday we may end up having an urban forester again. And that would, mm. I mean, not not an urban forester. Uh, forest entomologists again sorry about that that um but you know and that would be a you know a wonderful project to t- start talking about you know because it's going to impact both um you know people with with the native ashes on their property as well as all the um you know ashes that are used in the nursery industry and stuff like that so right right um and just to be clear, you know, I know people can also report sightings to the Washington Invasive Species Council. Do you work in tandem with them? Is it like you are you actually doing the testing for them? Are you the the man behind the curtain, so, so to speak? Um, at this point, I'm I mean, we we talk a lot with Justin Bush, who's in charge of that program and stuff yeah. like that. Um, I'm not sure who the official person is going to be for that particular mm. project. But like one of the if you if. We have another disease called um, rose rosette disease. It's a it's a disease across the United States, and mm. when we get when when the invasive species council gets a report of that, it goes to me because I'm you know been decided the person who knows the most about this. And of course, three quarters of the time, fortunately, it's oops, we use some Roundup near that rose, and so we've got you know herbicide <laughs> damage. Right. Um, and then only one time in the last couple of years have I ever thought, oh, maybe that's it. The one issue is I am a diagnostician. I have no, you know, clout. <laughs> so all I did was tell the client, you know, I'm a little concerned about your problem because it does meet all the, you know, check, check, check marks. Um, can you send me a sample? And in that case, sadly, you know, all they did was report it online. So we were never able to to confirm it. Um, but if we had had it and we'd confirmed it, I would have talked to, you know, um, Washington Department of Ag and Invasive Species Council and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, we're, it's a, it's a, we have a network and we have a lot of, uh, I guess we could call it maybe the mycelium, the interconnected linking, you know, <laughs> of all of us. Um, mycelium is a vegetative term for fungal um, growth bodies. Um, but yeah, so definitely, you know, when it goes to the Invasive Species Council, if somebody reports it, some, you know, somebody will be looking at that and saying, oh, no, that's our golden goo prested who every for whatever reason the common name is golden even though you know three quarters of the beetle is this glossy green um you know or no we need to look into this and so yeah somebody like me or my boss todd would be the people that would probably be getting that okay great yeah and there are a lot of lookalikes for emerald ash borer Oregon department of ag has a really nice worksheet that shows all of all the different ones so it really complicates the whole process i'm sure that's why we really need uh your services um and this like the stuff you and and um patrick i mean you're you're patrick (laughs) you and kevin do i mean one of the things i've noticed is that in the 23 years that i worked here it used to be that we would have maybe 15 20 insects for identification coming in every year um and we don't hardly get any insects anymore. And one of the reasons is, is that people can go to the internet and find great resources. Now, sometimes 
I'm not sure the quality of those resources, but if you turn to a, you know, an extension service or something or university, usually it's pretty good stuff. So that's, I mean, I, I think that the, the work we're doing in extension has just been fantastic for these, these kind of issues, sure. getting the word out. Um, and just out of curiosity, do you, uh, how, how closely do you work with like local master gardener or master naturalist programs? Is it a thing where, you know, if a landowner thinks they have EAB or thinks they have city bark or, or what have you might go to a master gardener plant clinic first and then work its way up to, to you if they can't get it figured out, can't get a positive ID? Yeah. So the work of the lab is, is, Probably 50% of the samples are are public um, or master gardener types of samples that come in here. Okay. Um, and so we get a, a ton of um, emails, you know, with pictures. That's our pretty much the standard for the last three or four years. Um, and then if I, there's something that I'm concerned about, I will definitely be like, hey, I, this might be what it is, but we need to see it. So, you know, send it in. Um, but, yeah, that's the issue with the, the – I mean, I try to do everything that I can do to help people. I'm one person, you know, there's how many counties that have master gardening programs, et cetera. So I can't, you know, the numbers game doesn't work out that well. Um, <laughs> sure. But definitely, um, you know, if a, if, a, if a county sent me a sample, um, we definitely would give them help. If a landowner, you know, calls up, I mean, I get a lot of landowners calling up saying, I need somebody to come out and see, walk my property. I'm like, well, certified arborist is going to help you there. I mean, I, right. I cannot come out to the site, but many of the certified arborists will then send a sample into me to like confirm that it's laminated root rot or the beetle is this type of beetle or something like that. So I always feel like, I mean, I wish, I, I wish we had the time to go out and, and do site visits and that kind of stuff, but we do have, a you know, a, we, we support so many people that most, mostly, um, you know, we, we aren't, if, if one of the listeners here today has a problem, I'm definitely start by talking to me and we'll see what we can do for you. But, yeah. um, you know, there might be a case where we have to get others involved as well. Um, yeah. And then that does bring up, you know, a point, what do I do? Well, first of all, we do have to charge some, some fees for our diagnostic work because it's, you know, takes time. It, there's resources involved like microscopes sure. that need to be maintained and auger that needs to be purchased. We're relatively cheap, um, 25 to $40, depending on what's actually happening. Um, I'm the person that does the diagnosis and does the billing, and that's really hard. I mean, your doctor's offices would all go out of business if they were the doctors were doing the billing too. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, try to be as fair as I can, and you know, assess assess the the cost as as possible. Um, and then when a sample comes in, um, you know, I can't. Pro I mean, people are always like, "How fast is it going to be?" Well, sometimes it's minutes. Like I know it because I worked on it 15 years ago and I figured it out. Sometimes I work for a month and a half and still don't have an answer for you. So there's wow. no, you know, the good old, it depends answer is I guess how long it's going <laughs> to take. Um, but I'm also like the greasy wheel gets the grease, you know, if you if you squeak, you'll, you'll get some grease. So, you know, right. give me a couple days to a week to figure it out and then start emailing or calling and I'll do my best. Um, and then um, the other thing is when we do try to do a diagnosis, we, we don't just say it's this, this bug or this, you know, disease, we try to tell you what, what you can do about it. Um, and I generally use things like the um, PNW Insect Management Handbook or the PNW Plant Disease Handbook, um, because, you know, everybody has different strategies for managing things. So I, I don't want to tell you, you know, this is the only way to do it. I mean, there'll, 
there might be cultural things you can do, like thinning the forest. There might be right. um, picking the, t- the type of, of plant, you know, replanting certain types of plants. There might be chemicals that may or may not be a- applicable to the situation. Or, you know, there are lots of people that come to me and they don't want to use anything. And I'm fine. You know, okay, so we're going to rely on other management methods instead. So I just tend to say, you know, here are your options that are that are possibly effective and, and legal. You know, you pick which one are going to be. And then there's lots of times where I'm like, I really wish there was something practically do, but now you have a name to swear at it the next time, you know, you you notice it. So (laughs) sadly, that's often the case. And one of the reasons is is that we often look at, you know, human health as an individual thing. We're all very valuable individuals. And yet, as you know, as a forester, we look at forests as the ecosystem. We don't look at the particular plant. So it's just a, it's one of the ways where analogies to human medicine don't work so great because we're going to look for, you know, in a hundred years for this whole forest, not necessarily for, plant, you know, Douglas fir A or vine maple B kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely have met some landowners that have named nearly all of their trees. Right. That's awesome. <laughs> and <laughs> but... that's wonderful. It's wonderful. But we have to treat it as an aggregate yeah. uh, when we're talking about forest ecology. Uh, well, Jenny, you know, this has been awesome, and I'm sure we could continue to talk about all your interesting work and all the, all the diseases and insects and stuff that are out there uh, for several more episodes worth of, of podcasting. Um, but I'm really glad that we, um, we booked you and we were able to talk about this and people can learn about the, the services of the plant clinic. I think there's a lot of opportunities for, uh, you know, the extension forestry program and, and the plant clinic to, to work together, especially as we mentioned with, you know, all these new tree diseases, either becoming more relevant or having new ones entirely like emerald ash borer. So I just exactly. want to thank you for, for, for coming on. If there's any, you know, last you know, messages to the listeners, uh, feel free. We can definitely get your email up um, on okay, the perfect. on the description. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, to the listeners, I just appreciate all the things you're doing to, to manage your forests. Um, you know, the stewardship of the land is so important. If I can be of any help to you in the tr- terms of diseases or pest identification and management, you know, email is probably my best thing. But those of you that want to call, you know, the telephone does occasionally get answered. So don't, don't hesitate <laughs> that way too. Um, and just thank you for your time today. It was great, great talking with oh, everybody. So. Perfect. Well, well, thank you so much. And uh, all right, with that Overstory listeners, we will catch you next month.